who is the character that is is most profoundly changed or impacted by the scene that I'm writing and how do I get into their head so that I can work through what that what that means to them. David McCloskey is the author of Damascus Station. Uh, David was an analyst um, specializing in Syria. He left CIA in 2014, went on to be a consultant, and now he's writing fantastic spy thrillers. This conversation, truth be told, happened about three to four months ago, long before uh, even the buildup of uh, Putin's brutal invasion of Ukraine. Our initial discussion about Syria uh, sounds an awful lot like Ukraine right now in some eerie ways. Begin transmission. Yeah, I mean, just to kind of jump into Syria right now, I mean, they, over, over half the country's been dis- displaced. I mean, Syria is, is is this diaspora in some ways. I mean, are there are there other locations or other countries that sort of seem like a, like a center of Syrian culture or inf- or information? Most of the refugee populations, my understanding, um, you know, are in the neighboring countries, right? So they're in in Jordan and in Lebanon and in, and in Turkey. Where now, I mean, obviously, the refugee the sort of experience differs depending on your sort of connections and, and your social and financial standing when, when you decide to leave, right? So some have obviously resettled and would be a um, small number here, you know, some in, in, in Europe, of course, but you know, a large number is still very much in these kind of, you know, displaced persons camps in the nearby, the nearby countries, which are obviously no one wants them there, right? And, and it's, uh, it's created a whole bunch of just kind of humanitarian and political complications around, around them just being in these places around around Syria with, with no real resolution in sight, you know, no prospects for many of them to, to go back, at least in the near term. So it's, uh, yeah, I think that the number I had seen was something, I said the pre-war population was about 22, 23 million. And I want to say that at least half of that number is now either displaced or internally or out of the country. Um, so something like, you know, five and a half, six million refugees and then five and a half, six million displaced internally, not to mention the you know number of people who have actually died in the conflict. And the UN stopped counting those numbers, I think, five years ago. They stopped at something like 400,000. You know, numbers like that are almost kind of too hard to even really process or think about what that means to a society. But it's been a just a complete kind of shattering of of the, the country that was. 900,000 in Jordan and maybe 800,000 in Lebanon. Yeah, I haven't really been paying attention. So have people sort of settled in or are they still in these camps that you talked about? Yeah, it's a, it's a mix, but I mean, the camps are still very much a real reality of, of life for many refugees in these countries. Um, you know, and conditions are, are of course, bad. Uh, the, they're not wanted by the host government. Feels like it should be a transitory, you know, or sort of some kind of middle ground between you know, departing seriously violence and then being resettled somewhere. But that hasn't obviously panned out for a large number of those mm-hmm. folks. Well, it seems like a great place to go and to recruit new agents for your books, you know? Well, probably more fertile ground for extremist groups than uh, than the Central Intelligence Agency, I would imagine. But um, it's uh, it's it's been writing a book and, and kind of starting to talk about it has... It's kind of been an interesting thing because I, for a number of years, when I left the agency in 2014, I never 
I didn't think about Syria. I didn't write about it. I was doing a consulting job and just very much, you know, not focused on it for, for almost intentionally so, because I was just ready to be done with it. And it was uh, been interesting to kind of come back to it and start to, you know, reimmerse myself in what's actually going on and to kind of come back into that world. And, and certainly the writing of the book kind of forced that experience on me because it's set in the, the early years of the war. So, you know, I'd say it's been kind of a, been good to have the process be sort of removed a little bit mm-hmm. from the immediate feeling that I had when I left the agency, which was, it was hard to, hard to watch that kind of conflict unfold and to have been there and know people and, and sort of lived through it. Uh, but the separation, I think, is what let me sort of look at it objectively enough to put a plot together and put characters together and really get down to, you know, the business of, of writing something that, you know, importantly, I wanted to write, but that other people <laughs> wanted to read. And those, those two things aren't always, you know, in harmony. Um, so hopefully, hopefully the book, you know, is, is sort of the, the middle of that Venn diagram. There's a lot. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot in your book. I mean, it's, yeah, it covers, you know, the, the, the Syrian families. I mean, the Hassans, the Hassads, the, uh, you know, the, the CIA characters. I, I, anyway, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of stumbling for words right now. I was, I'm really, really impressed and I really like, really like the book. But I guess I wanted to start with a question about, um, you know, you were an, I always imagine like an analyst is, you know, he's the one with a computer in the van, you know, clacking away, <laughs> clacking away, right? While the operator is doing all the cool stuff. And, um, yeah. And, you know, when your book started out, he's, you know, I saw Sam goes into the safe house and he pulls out some adult diapers. And I thought, oh, are these for him? This is an interesting, <laughs> this is an interesting. This is a weird protagonist uh, behavioral I thought, choice. Uh, for, for I thought, okay, this is going to, this is going to be interesting. But yeah, they were for someone else. But I was just wondering if you, uh, you know, while you were working as an analyst, if you did have this kind of alter ego as, uh, as someone in the operations side. You know, I, I, um, <laughs> truthfully, I never did. I was, I, I like to think good at my job, knew that I was p- pretty good at it, enjoyed it, knew that there were a lot of aspects to the work of an operations officer that, you know, maybe I wasn't suited for, wouldn't be appealing to me. But, you know, I would say that, like, I, I get these questions when I was talking about the book, like, is the case officer protagonist like you? Is he the alter ego? Is there, how much of him is you? And, and honestly, I think the answer is not, not a whole lot other than we were both born and raised in Minnesota, which was kind of a fun little narrative detail to sneak in there. He, he's really more of a composite of, of the case officers that, or at least started as a composite of the case officers that I knew when I was at the agency and, and who I worked with. And so I, I would kind of sit down and I wanted the book to be pretty realistic to the way the agency actually works. And uh, I also knew that the work of an analyst probably wouldn't you know, be enough to kind of drive a whole spy novel forward. Although I've got a number of analysts who make some fun appearances in the book. I was really fascinated and I've always been fascinated with the work of a case officer. I thought there was a lot of drama behind it that doesn't get fairly well represented in, in Hollywood or in most thrillers. And I thought it was, I thought it was like great foundation. It was a great foundation for an actual spy novel. And so I kind of, I thought of a bunch of the case officers who I had known and started to put together kind of sketches or think about different stories I had you know, witnessed or heard. And over time, they kind of merged into my, one of my protagonists, Sam, who you know, took on a, a life of his own as I wrote, but kind of started with, you know, probably three, four or five different case officers mm-hmm. as the, as the kind of inspiration for him or different pieces of him. And then over time, that mixture just kind of turned into 
you know, him. Uh, and he took on a life. He has some own. humor in, in this that, uh, which I thought was pretty, I mean, your character of Proctor. Oh my God. She was amazing. <laughs> I was fixing <laughs> She So we, we talk about alter egos weirdly enough. I don't know what this says about me. I'll leave it to, you know, psychologists, but she's the closest thing that I have to an alter ego in the book, like by, by far. So when I, when I write her character, I think her voice is closest to something inside me. That's a little bit uh, crazy probably. And, and is taking on, you know, she's a five foot one, you know, really tough case officer who, you know, is a very good case officer, but she's, she's pretty, pretty direct and, and pretty punchy and often very profane. And there was just something about her that I loved. And, and she's one of those great characters that just takes, like you start writing a scene with her and, you don't know where it's going to go, uh, which is kind of a weird thing to say, but she just had an energy to herself that I always, always Yeah, loved. there was a moment you described, Sam knocked on Proctor's door 30 minutes later. He had not brought swimming trunks, instead was wearing a pair of running shorts that were stupidly short and flimsy. He was profoundly uncomfortable. So... Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was, let's see. Then he talks about, uh, yeah, she, uh, Proctor, she removed her robe. She wore a black two piece swimsuit that matched her hair. It's kind of normal, unlike everything else in her wardrobe. But, uh, there's something that, there's something that was cool. Is like the farm had never prepared him for, uh, for that, for that site, you know, being in a swimsuit with his, uh, you know, I guess she was chief of station at the time. Yeah. I mean, you, you, yeah. I mean, you describe her white robe, edges brushing the floor as if she were a wizard. I mean, that's just that's just funny, you know. Like you're reading through this stuff, and it, it's such a serious. You know, I, I kind of like that she's a, she's a humorous character. You know, Sam is pretty is pretty straightforward, and you know, everybody's in such um, extreme circumstances that they can't really crack jokes. But you really find ways to uh, to lace in the humor with your uh, with your narration, which I really liked. So I guess so, you, but you also have a you also kind of shift your POV really deftly. You do like a little line between between the paragraphs. So I was wondering if that's something you did naturally, or did that come out of the editing? I know some books that classically will do a one chapter in one character's POV, then another chapter in another. But you sort of shift in and out pretty smoothly. I was wondering how you came up with that. You know, I um, initially, I mean, I, I knew kind of when I started thinking about the the plot and the characters that I wanted, I, I knew I wanted multiple points of view early on and probably more than just a couple. And, and, and that really came out of, I think, a desire to punch a lot of different windows into the conflict. Uh, and so not just to, not just to do like the CIA officers and, you know, the Syrians are sort of mysterious and maybe the bad guys. I didn't, that wasn't the story that I, I wanted to tell. So the multiple points of view came from a desire to really show the complexity of the conflict and, and to show the CIA sort of how it was interacting and, 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 and involved with it. But I think that the kind of shifts, maybe even sometimes inside a chapter, came out of a desire to be, to think about which character, you know, because sometimes there's a choice around, okay, whose head am I in here? Because I might have multiple characters together, you know, in the same place. And Oftentimes, I would try to think about who is experiencing that scene most vividly. Who does it matter the most to? Or sometimes, particularly with Sam and Miriam, as they're you know getting to know each other and eventually sort of falling into this relationship when they're in, in France, going back and forth so that you see both sides of something in in close to real time. So I would kind of think about, oh, how do I show multiple angles, or who is the character that 
is is most profoundly changed or impacted by the scene that I'm writing and how do I get into their head so that I can work through what that what that means to them. And honestly, it was a pretty um I would say frustrating process to figure out the answers to those questions because I probably, you know, I probably wrote a lot of the France stuff from multiple points of view. And then I would end up throwing away one part of, you know, one piece of it and then going with the other persons because I wouldn't really know which one was going to work until I wrote them both and kind of looked at it side by side. But I hope that the result is a, you know, book that A, gives you those multiple windows on everything, but also B, feels a little bit propulsive in the narrative and that you're not stuck for too long with any one character, you know, where you might get bored or, uh, you know, be less than, you know, less than interested, but you're kind of moving enough to kind of keep you driving through the book and interested in, in driving. Yeah. You're, I'd say you're like the altitude of your third person narrative. I thought it was just pitch perfect because you, you weren't so high that you had to be commenting on, I mean, I don't think you even mentioned who the president was at the time, you know, so you're still, you're definitely hovering over, over Syria, Italy, right. and France the, the whole time. But I was I was wondering about the Bandito brothers. Maybe there should be a book book from their <laughs> point of view. You know, just eating, just three guys eating pizza, talking about this whole thing like that. <laughs> they were yeah, they were fun. They were fun to write. You know, I think so. Their support assets, um, which again is sort of a feature of or, or one of the unique you know, aspects of I don't know tradecraft or, or just sort of the the asset stable that the agency has that I think doesn't get a whole lot of attention often in in spy thrillers, but are obviously hugely important, you know, as in any in any sort of uh foreign field in which you find yourself, you know, the agency is gonna need people who can just they may not have direct access to the plans and intentions of, of the government uh, or senior policymakers in that country, but they might be able to do simple things like get, get you access to, to cars that have clean plates or get, you know, rent apartments, things like that, that can be quite complicated for the CIA to do directly. They can do on, on behalf of the CIA. And I just thought it was a, you know, especially as I wrote, starting to think about the plot, I, I knew that I was going to need characters like that to just get some of the stuff done that I wanted to get done in the book. I had a lot of fun with the cryptonym too. I generally choose cryptonyms in the book uh in my books that my children will find amusing someday they're too young right now to read but there was a there was like a song that i would sing to my now six-year-old when we were trying to put him to sleep that had the word bandito in it and so i threw that in there because he still remembers it so um he also loves insects so in the book i'm working on now a lot of the safe houses the cryptonyms are different different insects that he's uh he's interested in you had a scene where sam is being briefed by some analysts i I guess back at at, yeah that was pretty funny there was just some subtle shifts in personality that you could tell which i wanted to get into something else because when you when you do describe i'll I'll talk about that later but when you describe these analysts you know one her her suit wasn't fitting quite so well and the other guy kept like picking his ear or something and uh i think male analyst he's i forget his name but uh he didn't like his kryptonym or he had a kryptonym that he didn't (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that Debman. Debman is the sort of frumpy male analyst who's. I think his. I think his. The kryptonym I gave him in the book was uh, Will, Willie T. Peck. Right. I think was. Does the, that happen? People get people the, get a kryptonym the, they don't like. Is there like a form formal oh, yeah. request no, to for change sure. it or and, something? Yeah. Yeah. No, that happens. Um, I had heard, and I included this tidbit in the book. I think it's. I hope it's not apocryphal, though it might be. I had heard that initially all the kryptonyms for 
CIA officers, yeah. what, we, what we call funny names are from that's that's I didn't just make that up. I, I've heard that as sort of agency lore that there was a British phone book or a series of phone books from the 50s that were used as kind of the initial fodder for all of the funny names that got created. I also they do sound, they do sound kind that, of Hogwarts, you know. Yeah, kind of. Well, and I don't know if the program's pulling an actual last name or if they're combining names right. or how it's how it's working. Uh, but I've also I've also heard that until I think until like the eighties or nineties, I don't think that program spit out uh, female funny yeah. names. So even uh, a female case officer would get a male name assigned to them. Some of the names were very very ridiculous, and I wanted to include them, but I can't because they're obviously classified, right. and they were far worse than Willie T. Pecker. And then someone would get that name assigned to them. And it's something like, you know, it, it's, it's going to be something very suggestive or, and then they'd have to go through a process <laughs> to, to then get it changed. So they wouldn't be referred yeah. to that uh, by that funny name, you know, for the next 20 years of their career. Your, your descriptions. I wanted to mention that because um, you have, you have this tendency to sort of create a little bit of story about each one of these or like an assumption based on your descriptions. Like, I mean, I mean, there was a sod, which I thought was great. It was constructed of random body parts, just sort of put together. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had to have some fun at Bashar al-Assad's expense because Lord knows he deserves it. And uh, I, 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 enjoy, I enjoyed taking a few cheap shots at, at the Syrian dictator. Yeah, you had a really good lead in with him. I mean, you kind of explain how he was an ophthalmologist trained in England, but and he is underestimated because of because of that in some ways. But, you know, you described that. You make it pretty clear that he's a killer as well. But like I yeah. said about some of these other descriptions, I don't think I have one specific one right now, but you would, you know, say, oh, he, you know, scuffed his shoe as if he, whatever, there was something on his socks as if he started to get changed after the murder and then decided enough was enough <laughs> and left the bloody socks. I mean, you, you describe something, but yeah. you also describe like the reason why it looks like that. And I'm just wondering if that's just a literary thing that you have naturally, or is that something that I have it you have from, um, from your previous work? No, it's probably, I, I mean, I don't know if it is from, from my previous work. I haven't, it's a good question. Um, do you add like a value to it, every little detail? Do you naturally kind of add a, add a little story to it or reason why it's like this, or do you just accept things? No, no. And, and, and in fact, I mean, I think this was kind of the fun part about writing a work of fiction after so many years of very analytical kind of dry writing, because the, the type of, the type of writing that I was doing at the CIA was, it's very sterile. It's, it's kind of anodyne, you know, it, it's, it's designed for very good reason to deliver analytic judgments without or trying to eliminate as much bias as you possibly can or any value judgments or any policy prescriptions. Like it is the definition of sort of cold analytical writing, you know, and that, that obviously applied to writing about a civil war that was anything but cold. I mean, it was burning hot and there was so much emotion and passion and violence and fear and all this kind of stuff laden in with it. And so, you know, when I, when I left, I mean, I was interested in actually writing something that, allowed me to bring a bit of that emotion that I had to, to bear. And so I think, I think a lot of the descriptions you're talking about are things, I mean, the one you, you, you cite with the character Rustam having, you know, blood on his socks is something that as I was writing that, I mean, I'm just kind of thinking about a Syrian, you know, a, a high ranking Syrian official who's got his hands very dirty in this case, literally, but then is like going to meetings later that day, <laughs> you know, he's got like normal, stuff he needs to do. And and I think that, you know, there are hopefully some 
scenes in the book that show that tension. I mean, another one that kind of comes to my mind is early on, one of the main characters uh, sort of starts as the antagonist, but he's more complicated than that. Um, Ali Hassan, right. you know, we meet him and he's, he's torturing a captured CIA in a, in brutal fashion. And, you know, he's next scene, he's going home and playing with his kids and having dinner. And, you know, I think that that back and forth was something that I think makes these characters, you not making moral judgments about them, but makes them human. Uh, and, and that was, you know, I think some of the, some of the descriptions you're talking about are trying to bring out some of the humanity, not, not necessarily the good humanity, but the humanity and, in some of these very kind of complicated characters. Looking at it in that light, it's interesting to see your personality kind of, you know, squirting out of what you, what you called it, like an <laughs> anodyne description. It's like, you know, it's, Oh yeah, this is, this would be kind of funny. This doesn't, this seems like, yeah, there might've been yeah. something that you've been, you were repressing right, <laughs> while you were. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're repressing it. You probably don't even know you're repressing it, uh, you know, but, but you are. And, and anytime, I mean, you know, I couldn't have written any of this stuff back, uh, you know, in my agency days, right? Because it would have been edited out, edited out of any piece that I wrote. So now, kind of having the the, the full, the blank canvas felt, um, you know, it was pretty, pretty. Yeah, there's some things in the book that kind of threw me. Like every, every, like any, every text message, you might as well be standing in front of your house just yelling it out, right? I mean, there was yeah. methods yeah. of communication. I did, was, I mean, the Syrians could hear it, the Russians could, you know, decode all this. That if you are using any type of like public electronics that it's going to be it's going to be seen by somebody and certainly in the syrian context right i mean you're gonna i I was trying to i think capture something of the real paranoia and the sort of surveillance and counter surveillance that the syrians do on each other i mean the the syrian character ali hassan is you know talking about how he's tapping the phones of rivals at another intelligence agency and he knows that they've also tapped his you know and so you have this weird world where you have everyone's you're kind of especially in the intelligence services you know you're, you're sort of having a mandate in some cases to watch others and you know that you're also being watched and uh, one of the things i was i was interested in in the book was just thinking about okay you know from a from a human standpoint what does that really do to people what does it do to relationships how do people respond in an environment like that right where you have that level of sort of fear and paranoia that's kind of baked in to the, to the system uh, and is sort of outside of any one individual's capacity to control or really influence. How do people, how do people behave? For this show, I interviewed a friend of mine, a good friend of mine from a childhood friend, and he's become like a professional poker player. Mm. And I thought I wanted to hear some of the things that he had to say that might be similar to, you know, espionage and so forth. But, but I think, I think that's what you're talking about is other people have, other people have cards that you can't see and they can yeah. hurt and they can definitely hurt you, you know? Yeah. So yeah. what are the methods you, you use to try to one, protect yourself from any of those, you know, possibilities, you know, and then also to, to get what you want, but had you, were you a poker player? Very amateur. Like, I mean, nothing, nothing super serious, but I always, I always enjoyed it a lot, probably too much to be honest yeah. with you when I was playing was playing it sounds like <laughs> well i don't so i don't i don't really play i don't really play anymore. i played a lot when i was sort of high school college early in the 20s so probably there's probably a good like 10 year period there where i was i was playing pretty extensively and i always thought it was i always thought it was such a wonderful game because especially when you had a decent amount of money on the line because it you know 
to some degree it mattered what cards you had and to some degree it didn't. And there was always some fascinating psychology in there around being able to lose games when you got great cards and win games when you didn't. And, and the combination of the luck and skill, I always thought was, it was one of the things that made it sort of kind of maddening because there was, there was art and science mixed together and, and sort of a standoff with people and, I just, I really, I really liked it. It's one of the reasons why I wanted the main character to have that as one of his, you know, sort of former, former addictions in the book was, was playing too much poker. Oh yeah. I thought that was a great choice. I mean, when he describes Miriam putting down a, I think a piece of paper on the table, her hand was shaking, like, like, what was it? Like someone who thought they had a winning hand, but wasn't really oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. sort of slight little shake, you know? Yeah. Yeah, just the little the little tremor. There's I have got the scene in, in Vegas where he's he's bluffing this kind of probably fairly wealthy British guy who's who's gambling and just kind of reading some of the way, you know, the, the breathing patterns, they're the breathing, the betting patterns, the physiological expression and are people sweating and how are they breathing? And then also the sort of more kind of quantitative analysis around thinking about how he's betting and how that you know what that means for this current hand. I I, I just think it's I think it's super fascinating. I also thought it was interesting, even though there's obviously the sort of cliche James Bond spy novel cards overlap. You know, I thought for a case officer, right, who's who needs to be adept at understanding how people tick and at reading people and at thinking about what they're not saying, right, uh, as opposed to what they're saying. Like I thought it was a good background to come out of. For, for somebody who would then be very effective as a case officer. There's also the, you know, sort of the, the assessment or measurement of risk and thinking about that, that I think a lot of these, a lot of these case officers are quite, quite good at. Um, and it felt like a good, good former hobby for my protagonist to have. Yeah. Yeah. I liked it. Yeah. The friend of mine, he's, he mentioned, uh, I said, what is, what is the one behavior that, you, that is probably the most revealing? And he said, it's definitely breathing. Yeah. And his ability to control his own breathing mm-hmm. as well. That was the kind of yeah. the challenging parts. That's interesting. That's interesting. I remember, I remember watching a lot of my friends in college play and it was, it was like breathing. You could sometimes see it in kind of the throat, like swallowing, like weird, you know, just sort of non-natural breathing when they were, you know, getting excited. And then you have to, you have to go to the further level though, to figure out if they're excited because they think they're going to win or if they're excited because they, <laughs> you know, they're trying to bluff you, but it's, it is, it's interesting how it just sort of physiologically manifests itself and, and that you can, you can observe that even if they're got the stupid sunglasses on and the hoodie and all of that, <laughs> and you kind of still, you can still pick up on it in a lot of cases. Just watch the Adam's apple going <laughs> exactly up and down. Yeah, I wanted to ask a bit about your process. You mentioned in your acknowledgments, um, you had an editor that helped you pretty pretty significantly, I think, in the beginning from your first draft to what it ended up yeah. looking like. I mean, what were some of the biggest changes or adaptations that that you made from your initial drafts? Yeah, so... Was it stru- I mean, just mean in broad strokes, was it stru- yeah, yeah, stru- no, stru- I, structure, story, character? I think, so I'd probably kind of chunk out the process or sort of the editing process for me in a couple different phases. So the first one was like, I had, you know, kind of a first draft done that I, I, I showed to very few people, but then got some feedback on and over, you know, maybe four to six weeks kind of turned that in multiple passes into something that I felt like was pretty close to quote unquote done. A lot of the edits suggested in that phase were more structural kind of stuff. So it was like, Hey, this point of view doesn't work or, 
moving, you know, you should move these chapters around, um, things like that. So it was, it was more, um, I would say kind of elemental type structural feedback. Uh, once I got it through that, I ended up, you know, getting an agent and then going on submission to a number of, of different publishers. When we finally, you know, landed one at, at Norton, the, the editor who, who was really interested in the story had a lot of very, uh, I still have the manuscript, a lot of very choice feedback on some of the writing, which obviously came out. I, I don't have a, any formal training in creative writing, like whatsoever. And so, and then he was right in, in almost all of his comments, but really identifying a lot of what I'd call just kind of basic writing 101 mistakes. And at the same time, you know, I had some distance from writing the book. And so I went back and did my own reread and thought I had to redo the first section of the book. So what ended up happening right before, you know, Norton finally bought it was I rewrote the first section uh, and then I, you know, basically fixed all of that kind of writing 101 stuff. And, and uh, that was the final kind of push before we got to, we got to the, the deal. And even after that, I mean, I've done three or four passes through it mm-hmm. uh, to, to tighten things or to, you know, for example, like get a little bit more crisp on some of the details around the car bomb that I have constructed in the book. Uh, that all happened, you know, even within the past six, seven months. So it's a, it's a frustrating process in a lot of ways. Cause you always think like, okay, I'm quote unquote done at like the next stage gate, but you know, you have to go through like 50 of those before the book actually, you know, comes out. But it, it was a very, I, I think, you know, one of the most, and I think, I, I think I say this in the acknowledgements is like writing is really a very lonely team sport at the end of the day, yeah, you know, yeah, you're, I saw that. You have to you have to do the actual work of the writing by yourself, just in front of a computer screen or longhand or at a typewriter or whatever. But at the same time, you know that's only going to, at least for me, I'll just speak for myself. It's only going to take you so far, and you really have to have a pretty wide group of people who can read for prose, read for logic, read for pleasure, you know, like read for technical ability uh, or, or certain, you know expertise that they've got you have to bring a whole bunch of eyes on it i think to get it to a spot where where hopefully a, a lot of other people will want to read it or at least will you where where i would feel satisfied that the thing that i had was you know the best that it could be were there any specific things you did as a writer like i don't know dangling modifiers did you have your own <laughs> oh i keep screwing this up or oh my you run on sentences did you have any particular uh <laughs> yeah i had so i had anything that you would do I'll, I had one, which I had a tendency to to sort of use occasionally florid prose, so like overwrought descriptions of things. And uh, the best piece of advice I got on that was, well, really, I got two pieces of advice on that. One was, if you just read some description, reading your own stuff out loud is a good way to figure out if what you've written is insane. And then two is if you're writing, you know, something that's about a description that a character is seeing or smelling, or, you know, they're taking in some kind of sensory experience, just to stop yourself and think about whether what you're describing or how you're describing it exists in the real world, which sounds like a weird thing. But sometimes when you're writing, you're you're in a fictional land, right? Or fictional world. And uh, you can write things that may sound kind of interesting in your own mind as you write them. 
and feel like they work, but then, you know, they don't actually have any resonance from a character or human standpoint. And so checking myself on, on that, I think was, was helpful. And honestly, as I'm working through, I'm writing another book right now, you know, the conversations I've had with my editor about it, it's, it's, we're not really finding a lot of instances of that. I think I've been able to kind of <laughs> take on some of those lessons and, and, and improve the writing uh, in that way, at least. Yeah. I like to, you know, David Ignatius, you probably got some comparisons to him, but um, his agents of innocence, I think, Yeah, I think it was agents of innocence, but he, you know, they would be making a dinner or something, but he would provide the recipe in a footnote, yeah. <laughs> you know, but I liked yours in that it was more like a YouTube video. You, the, the scene continued while you were making it. So I can actually, <laughs> I know how you, I know how you made that sauce without putting the Ignatius recipe in the footnotes. <laughs> I was, I was working through at the time that I was writing that I was doing a lot of Italian cooking and I was working through, um, Marcella Hazan and Lydia Bastianich's Italian cookbooks. And so I just sort of had that on the brain and I thought, you know, Hey, this is these, these two people, Sam and Miriam in the book, they're getting to know each other. They're like, they're going to, they're going to cook and I'm going to have them cook Italian. But it was, it was fun to work some of that, work some of that stuff in there. Yeah. I was like, Oh damn, he's going to make the pasta too. <laughs> yeah. Well, pasta you know, too. I mean, that's, and that's the, that's the wonder of fiction is uh, I think in real life, he probably wouldn't make that pasta, but it felt, it felt more fun uh, to me to have them do it by hand. And, you know, they could have, they're having a little experience together. Why? I was like, why not? We'll see. We'll see if it works. So and I think it did for the most part. I thought it did. Yeah. I mean, it adds, you know, it just adds like color and flavor. Also yeah. your descriptions of um, like explosions or being uh, getting like an electric jolt or something. I mean, how did you come up with those? Did you talk to people about that? I mean, I like the electrified because you weren't really sure what was happening to this person. His yeah. know, things that he was seeing. Did you, did you do any research or I did? So I, I, I did there any method research. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Some <laughs> intensive, uh, intensive personal research. I've heard a lot of explosions. I, and, and I listened to a lot of them, you know, just, I would, I would listen to videos of explosions as I was writing, right. To kind of just think about, okay, well, what's that like? And I mean, there's just so much out there now where you can kind of get some of these sensory experiences, even if they're sort of in a distant, you know, past your memory or, or in the case of like electrocution, I've never been tortured. Uh, so I don't really know what it feels like, but you can, you can certainly, you know, I listen and it, I joked with my wife that, you know, I think if the FBI were monitoring my Google searches during the time I was writing the book, I would have had some, some real problems, but I did a lot of, you know, there's a, there's a lot of documentation uh, in Syria uh, of the regime's war crimes, abuses, disappearances into interrogation centers, people have come out of those. And then, you know, spoken with like uh, human rights watch or Amnesty International or journalists and stuff. So you can, you get a sense, I think, and so far as you can of what that could be like, and, and, and how others have described it. And I think I, I kind of see myself when I'm, when I'm writing something that I haven't experienced firsthand uh, is just how do I tell this story if this person were here with me and they were sort of describing what it was like. And, and, and I think in, in that case, uh, I probably did take some creative licenses in thinking about uh, what, that, what that experience would be like, but tried to ground it, you know, hopefully uh, in, in some of the real stories that have come out of, out of the war. 
Yeah, I remember. It just reminded me. I was in the. I mean, I was in the first Gulf War, and we went to Kuwait City after the, mm-hmm. you know, after the Iraqis had been run out. And there was a Kuwaiti that I got to know, and who was working with the Americans. And he said, "Come on, I got to show you something." So he took me to this uh, this house. It was like a palace, which which the Iraqis had used as a headquarters. Mm-hmm. Uh, the and there were still like you know their cigarette butts. You know the the clotted. I love the clotted ashtray. I totally love oh, yeah. that. Right. <laughs> I mean, these were Iraqis. They weren't obviously Syrians, but yeah. I mean, upstairs there was a room that had metal bed frames and these, you know, almost these like little dials with with elect- electricity that they were using, and there's there was blood and other other paraphernalia around. So yeah, those those places exist. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, no, they they do, and and uh, you know, I had a I, there. I had a hard time writing some of that stuff. Right. And I mm-hmm. kind of, uh, I wasn't sure uh, there were multiple points where I just kind of, I wasn't sure like, I mean, should I really have, is, should I have this in here? And, and I don't, you know, there's a, a sense of kind of not debate, but conversation with my editor around, you know, if you dip toward real, like realism in some of this horrific stuff, there's obviously some subset of readers who are going to be like, Hey, no, thanks. You know, I, I don't want, I don't want anything to do with this. And, and so, I think I was trying to sort of, I don't know, strike some kind of balance between dealing realistically and authentically with what actually happened there and sort of giving some of those, you know, my, my characters, some of those experiences or having them, you know, participate in them with also not letting this become something that was really, really hard for people to, to read um, in, in general. And I think there's probably no perfect balance on, you know, on any of that, but I, I did feel like it was important in in this, you know, in the book to kind of try to try to be realistic with the fact that the conflict has been marked by this kind of suffering and and that these, to your point, you know, these places exist. This is real. This kind of stuff happens, and uh, and it's been a, a very prominent feature of of the conflict there, really, almost since the beginning. So, are you going to write another one, and are you staying in that genre? Yeah, I've got. Uh, I've got another one that I'm about, I'd say I'm about 80% of the way through the first draft. It's a, it's a spy novel. Uh, it's set in the present day. It picks up with a few of the characters from Damascus Station, a few of the surviving characters without giving too much away. Proctor, um, please. Proctor. And Proctor. Well, <laughs> um, <laughs> Maybe. Okay. So, well, yes. No, I'll, okay. I'll tell you. Yeah. So she's, she, Pro, Artemis Proctor is, is in the book. She has, she actually has a larger role in this one. Oh, good. Um, uh, which I've had a lot of a lot of fun with. She wasn't actually in the initial outline I put together, but then I started writing some scenes with her, and as she's kind of want to do, it just took on a <laughs> life of its own, and she became one of the principal characters. Um, so she's she's in it. I won't say any of the others, but yeah. uh, it is it's U.S. Russia focused, and it's it's really looking at um, kind of the next phase of the US Russia spy war and trying to try to look at the question of what what would it really look like if the CIA got serious about sticking it to Putin that's the kind of what if set up for the book if we full if we fully engaged in a hybrid war if we yeah so exactly so like what what if we got really serious about you know responding to the directed energy attacks and responding to their I mean, I just go, I go to the whole litany of stuff, right? From the social media, sort of the flaming of our, our divisions, the, the bounties in Afghanistan, right? The right. territorial takeover. I mean, it's Crimea, the 
you know, cyber attacks in Ukraine and, and you know, sort of meddling in our own infrastructure. I mean, there's just a tremendous list of stuff that, you know, I'm sure, I, and I'm out of the agency, right? But I'm sure we're doing some things in response, but um, I don't know any agency officer right now who feels like we're in any way really strategically responding uh, to the, to the, you know, fairly brazen way that the Russians have been poking at us in recent years. And so this new book is, is really trying to, again, it's a little bit of a counterfactual, right? Because it's not saying this is what happened, but it's imagining what it would look like if we got into a situation where we were much more willing to do this kind of stuff. And it's been really fun to write. I've got two more Syria books outlined, uh, but that kind of take the Damascus station story through the, uh, through the war. But uh, I've, I've been having a lot of fun with the Russia book and, and that hopefully will be the, the next one to come out. Yeah. You know, I was reading some, who knows how those things can kind of influence reality as well. I was reading something that, I mean, you have the born identity, right? I guess there was a, there was an Israeli operation. Um, yeah. I think these, well, the born identity, right. It's based on an Israeli operation. Oh, I think. really? Right. Okay, I didn't. And <laughs> when did, when did well, Ludlum write that? That's I'm. Oh, I know. But how it long was, is it was in this? God, it must have been in the because I remember reading it like in the early eighties, you know, okay. mid eighties or so. But that was based apparently on a on an Israeli operation. They said, "Well, we'll take this um, person from I forget where it was a Palestinian or West Bank, and we'll we'll um, we'll brainwash them, and then we'll we'll send them back." And, yeah. Uh, I forget who I was. I, I don't really have the exact person that I talked, to. but somebody they interviewed someone from the Mossad about that operation. They said, "Where did your inspiration for that come from?" They said, "Oh, it was um, it was for the Manchurian Candidate." <laughs> <laughs> so you have like a movie that inspired a real operation that inspired that another inspired another mo- another movie. Yeah, so I just looked it up. It was it was nineteen eighty was was Born Identity. That's funny. I mean, I so. On the in the Syria book, there's a whole bunch of stuff in there that really happened. Um, you know, mostly from the standpoint of sort of the war and Syrian events, but a couple operational kind of pieces in the in the book were, were based on on real life events. I mean, the the one you're making me think of is Agents of Innocence, uh, the old uh, Ignatius book from late '80s, maybe that mm-hmm. was you know about a high level CIA penetration of the PLO. And that, that really happened. Right. Uh, that, that was, a you know, he got that story from his amazing, my understanding, at least I haven't talked with David about it, but my understanding is he got that story from the uh, contacts of the CIA and right. uh, thought it was perfect fodder for a book. I mean, and I'm, I'm experiencing something similar with the, the Russia book right now is I'm having to do a lot more research for this one. Cause I didn't work Russia issues at the, CIA. I worked on on Syria, and so I kind of had a lot of it in my in my head. But at every turn, any sort of plot device or you know anything the Russians are doing, the the truth has been far more interesting than anything that I could imagine. You know, for for the mm-hmm. most part, they're every day, you know, every week, every month. There's just tons of material that the the Russian intelligence services themselves are sort of revealed to be doing or might be doing that I think is far more interesting uh, than whatever I could make up. So it's, it really is, you don't have to go that far for, for good content in the, in the spy world as our, you know, Israeli friends said when they were copying the Manchurian candidate and, and right. uh, it's, 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 it's fascinating. John Le Carre or Ben McIntyre? Le Carre. Stripes or solids? 
stripes. Sandbaggers or the prisoner? Uh, sandbaggers. Uh, surveillance or counter surveillance? Counter surveillance. Crunchy or smooth? Crunchy. Truth or dare? Dare. Facts or feelings? Facts. Uh, wool or cotton? Wool. Beirut or Berlin? Beirut. Covert or clandestine? Covert. Black bag or burn bag? Burn bag. Blue badge or green badge? That's the easiest one. Blue badge. Okay. Um, off the X or in the mix? Off the X. And I think I've gone over more than 12, but the last one is live drop or dead drop? Live drop. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is about you guys in the intelligence, but I mean, civilians will talk about anything anywhere, but you guys are like, nah, we, we, need, a, we, need, a, we need a Northeast man to talk about that or... You know, we need a. <laughs> we got to get somebody from the Sri Lanka desk to talk about this. I don't yeah. know what you're talking about. We always joked because the the agency had become, you know, I mean, after after nine eleven, so much hiring happened so quickly, and uh, obviously the it, you know it sort of grew in number. We always joked about the sort of the pie that we were looking at, you know, being sort of sliced thinner and thinner. So we we had a long running joke on the Syria account as it got bigger that, you know, eventually one of us would just be like the, the Sunni foot, footwear merchant, you know, <laughs> analyst. And, we need a and, Sunni footwear man in here. Yeah, like, you know? We're not like, I'm just, the, I'm the Shia footwear guy. I don't <laughs> want to answer any questions about the Sunni version, which was obviously, you know, uh, not true in terms of how the accounts were sliced, but not inaccurate in the spirit of things being kind of tightened up in terms of how much you were really covering. Um, that's, that's interesting. Well, I really enjoyed talking with you. This was really fun. And I'm um, glad yeah, you Likewise, met. Mark. Likewise. Excellent. Thanks for being on the show. Hey, happy to. That was my talk with David McCloskey, author of Damascus Station. Uh, if you like what you're hearing, if you're enjoying these episodes, um, you know, I would say I have a PayPal, I have a Patreon, but uh, I'm encouraging people to donate and to give what they can to the Ukrainians and uh, their struggle against um Vladimir Putin's brutal onslaught. There will be some charities and links in the show notes and the transmission. Bye.